the JTAP podcast, episode 52. Send it. I can do that. JTAX. Clearing it hot, making it rain, and bringing the boom boom. Um, welcome, everybody, to episode 52 of the JTAP podcast. Another one of my uh, US brothers. Derek, appreciate you uh, taking the time and sitting down to chat with me. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Like I say at the beginning of these, a bit of admin at the start, you know, everyone's opinion on here is their own. It's not that of, uh, you know, any organization. And we're just here to tell some lighthearted stories and uh, maybe lift the veil a little bit on uh, what our community does uh, for people out there listening. Derek. Obviously, people may or may not know you, or, and you maybe will uncover a few things that they thought they knew about you, but they don't. <laughs> so that could be interesting. But yeah. take us all the way back to the beginning, man. Take us back to your growing up, where you come from, what the family structure looked like, sort of those school years before you made the decision to serve. Sure. So um, I'm 37 now. I served for 10 years in the U.S. Marine Corps. I got out in 2016. Uh, as a captain, my primary billet was as an AH-1 whiskey Super Cobra pilot. I did that for most of the time. So that's where I, that's kind of the tar- to Tarantino. That's where I ended up. Now I take it all the way back, I guess. Um, uh, oldest of five. My dad was a stonemason. Uh, no, nobody in my family was a military brat at all. Um, I have a younger brother, three sisters, and we're all very close. Um, and uh, we, we were actually the weirdos growing up because we were all <laughs> We were homeschooled, and back in the day, that was not the cool thing, you know. Yeah, it's, it's much common now, especially with the whole COVID thing. That's starting to be more of a, a way. Actually, my wife and I were talking about it. it's kind of funny because we we already home our three boys we have now, and uh, you know, people are like, "Oh, this homeschooling thing is so hard," and I'm like, like it's kind of all I know." So, mm. I need some help. Let me know. Yeah. Reach out. Um, yeah. So my, my my dad was just super instrumental in all of it. He's really the main reason why I ended up where I ended up because. Um, so growing up, he was a stonemason. He taught himself sales. He was a self-made man. Um, he didn't finish high school. He didn't have a dad. He had kind of a rough upbringing. So in, in the beginning, I was very sheltered. Little and uh, you still with me? Can you still hear me? Yeah, you were very sheltered. Yeah, so I was very sheltered. And um, so my mom was my teacher. And my dad would go to work. Um, and th- this went on, and I understand why, because we grew up in a not good neighborhood. Um, it was very rough, the windows breaking every so often, you know, uh, gunshots and stuff. It, it was kind of rough with that. So he kind of like sheltered us all from it. And then I'll never forget, it was a, maybe a month or two before my freshman year of high school would have started. I'm sitting at the computer with our first computer ever, like 1995, you know, compact Presario is just an old brick and I'm reprogramming like MS DOS being a super nerd about this stuff. And he grabbed me by the back of the neck and goes, Hey, I'm not raising a wuss. Let's go. I'm like, where, where are we going? So he drives me to the high school weight room where all the football players are working out and goes, get out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 135 pounds, not very strong. Never done this stuff before. Um, my strength, if you will, was playing piano because my parents said, you're going to play piano. That makes you marketable for college. Maybe. Nope. Okay. So that was a rude awakening. And um, that was the first time I think I really uh, uncovered what I was made of and how strong I really could be because I found out real quick that even though I didn't know shit about what I was doing, um, I had this never quit in me uh, and it didn't matter how 
much I was pushed around or whatever in that first year, I never quit. And I just got mad. I got more angry, the more they pushed, and they made me want to, you know, fight back and get stronger. So between that year and the second year after the football season ended, I went to, I went and wrestled and my dad would get his watch out and go, okay, let's see how long Derek lasts. Um, I was known for having a really good bridge. No one could pin me because they just couldn't force my neck down. I would never win, but they couldn't beat me, you know, officially by pin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So between that freshman and the sophomore year, my dad bought a weight, a weight set, full weight set. And for like a year, like him, me, and my younger brother, all we did was lift weights. We put on like disgusting amounts of muscle, all the supplements. We just got yoked and uh, <laughs> yeah, went back. And I love to say that, you know, at that point, like from there, I just dominated. No, I, but it gave me some groundwork and we really like uncovered. Okay. Derek at the heart, at the heart of who you are, you're a fighter. Okay, cool. Sounds good. So what do you want to do? Well, um, I've always loved airplanes. Can I go fly? And again, we're not military, you know, background family, so we didn't really know anything about it. And my dad said, okay, Air Force seems like a good idea. And um, so we said, okay, where should we go to fly? And oh, by the way, we have no money for college. Okay, uh, Air Force Academy sounds good. And uh, I guess you better get good grades. <laughs> good wrestler, and you better play really good piano and do all the extracurriculars so you can get in. And uh, I got in. Um, Somehow, um, I ended up getting in. Actually, I got recruited by the wrestling team, which is, again, just to show how much my dad pushed for me and my, my brothers. He called the wrestling coach and talked me up. He was my own advocate. And he actually got me blue-chipped by the coach, which is basically means, like, if that coach says you're blue-chipped, you're in. Like, doesn't really matter. So I got, like, got in, got destroyed by this NCAA Division One team, promptly quit the team. <laughs> oh, man. But I, but I had made it in, you know, so I was like, whatever, I guess I'm good. Um, but I, I hated it, man. I, I hated sort of the Air Force um, way, at least the U.S. Air Force way at the academy, because there I was getting hazed every day by guys who were one year older than me. And these are sophomores in college, um, thinking that they've just got it made and they're, you know, God's gift. So and I would I would always fight them and I would get in trouble, you know, and it, it turned out Marine Corps was a way better fit for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it absolutely was. Um, I, I remember, I remember just singling people out and purposely starting brawls so I could go after somebody who had really pissed me off or had been, you know, screaming at me that day. Um, so anyway, I quit that. I went and got a real job for a year or two. And then I um, realized that, oh, hey, the Marine Corps has actual aircraft. Uh, let's yeah, try that. a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, and they do a lot of work too in very kinetic areas. So uh, once my dad figured that out and we, we sort of figured out, okay, how does this work? What's an OSO? What's officer candidate school for the Marine Corps? Um, you know, what aircraft do they even have? Do they even want to do that? Um, and so we, we went down that route and then, um, I actually got medical out of OCS cause I had a torn IT band. I had to go back and restart everything when I was almost done. <laughs> so, and that is like a depressing moment. I will never forget is getting there the second time and knowing, okay, you were like two weeks from the end, you know exactly what's coming. This is going to suck. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and, it's interesting now those sort of those big adversity points is in, you know, athletes talk about it and lots of people talk about it. It's like, I broke my leg. I tore my ACL. I did this, that, and the other. And then all of a sudden it's like from this slow trajectory to where they were going it like it, when they recover from that they because they've experienced diversity adversity they know what to do about it when it comes back around exactly and I, I attribute my lack of physical ability when I first started football and wrestling and having gutted out for a year or two and then learning how to get strong and then uh, you know, failing academically at the Air Force Academy because I just could not get my head in the game and I didn't like what I was doing and then having to go back to like, my life is over, you know, like a young kid. <laughs> yeah, everything's dramatic. 
Yeah, exactly. And then completely restarting from the beginning. Okay, do I have what it takes to do this? Let's reset and start over. Big time, like, okay, I, I see this mountain in front of me. Do I really want to climb this? Like you said, adversity points. Um, and then OCS, getting medical out and restarting, which is another one. And it, it set the stage for doing well, I think, once I became a part of the attack pilot community. Because um, uh, that's exactly where I went after that. I had my air contract through OCS. And then it got it got messed up in the paperwork, which the Marine Corps is brilliant at. Um, paperwork, sarcasm. And um, they actually lost my contract. So I lost my air contract because somebody misfiled paperwork. Wow. And yeah, so they said, well, you can refile for it, resubmit for it, but you're going to sit for six months. So I did that. They said the other option was to go like be an MP or something. And I said, okay, nothing against that, but that's not what I came in for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, file for it. So I waited, I got it. And then like a dum-dum, I went to my senior leader's office when he was going to say, okay, what track do you want? Because you can go, you know, jets, helos, heavies, whatever. Uh, me being the brilliant guy, you know, trying to, you know, be respectful and not single myself out. I said, okay. Um, I want Cobras. <laughs> so he's like, like basic category. I'm like, no, that one. I'm going to get that one. Oh, by uh, the way, that's one of the big guy. Yeah. Okay. Sure. You're going to, sh- you're sure to get that. Um, and, uh, when I remember winging and going back to him, I was like, Hey, so remember I said, I want Cobras. Yeah. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> barely, barely, but I got it. Yeah. Um, so I did. And then from there, I went to Camp Pendleton, went to the RAG. And uh, about four months after um, uh, I got out of the RAG, I got to my squadron and we deployed Afghanistan. So two pumps to Afghanistan. Um, right before that first pump, I got married. And we have our uh, three beautiful boys, uh, seven, four and a half, and one years old. And we're homeschooling them now. I got out in 2016. Got the, the kick to the teeth of civilian life and what a real job looks like. And, you know, real civilian world rules. And it was... It was not fun for a year or so, and uh, from there we kind of figured out, okay, this is how it works on the outside and living a civilian life. And, um, from there, we, we just kept pressing on. Here we are. Yeah. If you go back to that sort of point, obviously you looked at that guy and you were like, I want Cobras. And, and like you said, it's, uh, it's very specific. Um, but I guess, you know, sometimes it's good to have a specific goal on a distant horizon because even if you don't hit that, you know, what's it they say, aim small, miss small sort of thing. And, uh, you know, if you give yourself a goal, at least you're, you're shooting for something in the realms of what you actually you want to have. So given that, what does it look like, the pipeline, you know, you're successful, you're accepted, et cetera, but you're going to go rotors. They're like, yep, yeah, you're going to go. I assume they turn around at some point and say, okay, fine, you are going to go rotary. What does it look like after that that leads you to get into a Cobra? Sure. And it's, well, like you said, there, there's the rack and stack for, at every phase. So primary, there's the rack and stack. Okay, you guys got jets, rotors, heavies. Uh, depending on the needs of the Marine Corps at the time and how well you did, you get first pick. Same thing with rotors. Once you're in rotors, you go for a winging. And once you wing, I think it's your NSN or whatever that is. It's your, it's your grade of how well you do. First guy gets first pick. And every time there's a winging class, there's a certain amount of slots. And that might be Cobra's East Coast, Cobra's West Coast, uh, Huey's. The 46 at the time was going away. Um, Osprey's, whatever the case was. And number one guy gets number one pick. And then from there, you get orders and go to where you're going. Yeah. So I, you said barely. What do, what do you mean by barely? Was there, were you, did you, did you do a drug deal, uh, a golden handshake? 
or was it just no, you met the, uh, you hit the line there was another guy competing with me and uh i was number two out of uh 10 in that winging class i believe it was and this other guy was number three and my score was like two points higher than him it could have been like at any point in any flight i could have flubbed something up and this guy would have gone ahead of me and he was going for the covers west coast slide just like i was yeah and uh, so I, I found out later that my score was two two points higher than him and i, I barely got it <laughs> <laughs> what's it like obviously you turn up at uh, your first unit and you know absolutely everything obviously because you've just finished training and <laughs> you know you're the man right that's that's exactly how you feel coming out of training what's that how long did it take to realize that you knew you didn't know everything and uh, what you know what, what what happens how long before you fleet up and start working me I will say I was a little different in that respect because my dad always told me every time I went to a new phase, remember you're an idiot. So yeah. I actually, one of the, like the only mistake I didn't make was showing up that I thinking I knew everything. I showed up, I was very respectful, but I still had that attitude of like, look, I got it. We're still people and don't, don't freaking you know, disrespect me or we're going to fight. And that did not go over so well. <laughs> um, that took about four days <laughs> before some, was nose open for me. I was like, Garden got an attitude. I already know it. Garden has got an attitude. And from there, all the other pilots who had just come back from their first meet, this guy, we're going to put some attention on him and see how well he does. Um, and not to take anything away from, you know, homeschoolers, I, I was a little socially awkward. And even at that point, um, I just didn't get the idea of showing up at a, at a group of meat eaters like that because I never quite done that ocs was one thing these are some young nerdy officers you know um 303 the, the rag where you show up is one thing but that's not a stress x that's a okay we're gonna teach you how to fly this aircraft now you're actually in the squadron with people who have done the thing gone overseas some guys may have gone and done other like you know ground billets they're they're harder guys right understanding that mentality i was not ready for that so i definitely had some missteps but um yeah i showed up and in a couple of days, I, I realized that, okay, this is, the rules are a little different here and you really need to toe the line and shut the hell up for a little while. Otherwise you're going to get rolled up. Yeah. I think a huge thing for everybody is to realize that relationships are everything. Do you know what I mean? It's like how quickly you can develop relationships with people, you know, good relationships, I should say with people. Yep. Uh, that's what's important. And, and it took me a number of years to, to, you know, get that right. And, and I'm probably still working hard on it now, but, and I'm sure there's plenty of people along the way I've rubbed the wrong way and it wasn't my intention, but I've certainly learned that relationships are all when it comes to being, uh, to being successful or being a team player. Um, so you're on your first squadron. How many sort of, sort of tables and, and, you know, cycles do you go through before your first deployment? What does that look like? That build up, that spin up for a, uh, for a squadron? Yeah, so when you get there, it, they right away start tactics. You're handed the, here's the book, start memorizing stuff, you dumb dumb. Start figuring out, let's just start with all, all the essays, you know, SA2 all the way through SA22 at the time it was, you know, memorize everything at, at, at the drop of a hat, be ready to, to puke it back up. Um, plus you're, you know, studying for your flight. So really you, you have an initial syllabus. And I think three days after I got there, we went on our first debt. So it was a, two or three week debt to Yuma, Arizona, where we really do some hardcore cast training. Um, and that was my, that was sort of my first of two spin-ups because we did that. We came back, we had a couple of weeks, then we went to EMV, which is now ITX and used to be Mojave Viper. So out in uh, 29 Palms, that's like the obligatory pre-deployment, five weeks of, you know, soul crushing. So that was my spin-up. Um, 
Uh, other guys had been on the squadron for about a year prior to that, so they definitely knew what they were doing a little bit better. They had a little more time, and I could whine about it, but I'm not going to. Um, it's just the way it landed. <laughs> no, I, got here. I definitely wouldn't. I'd be like, get some. Here we go. You know, this is what I, this yeah. is what I joined for. Let's get me going. So, yeah, I, that's cool. Yeah, I cool. flights in like, I think I had 13 flights in 11 days. Amazing. My it was like, <laughs> suck it or not. Yeah, so you go away. What what year was that that you, you went away, that first year? First deployment was in 20, 2011, and that was the uh, Ashton B11X, and uh, we were there from April to November of okay. 2011. Yeah, well, uh, we, we, we'll, uh, we'll talk offline because we probably definitely talk to each other on the radio. Um, <clears throat> so you, come, you go away on that tour. What's that like, you know, in as much as, you know, you, like you said, it's, it's rapid turnaround. It's straight out of this. It's straight to the face. It's like, get yourself down there, get, get your, uh, your, you know, your reps in and you're good to go and you're away. 2011. What's that like? What's that sort of mob life, you know, get up, live in a tent, cycle in and out. What's that look like for you as a young man? For, you know, for me, it was, it was a test of everything I had trained for and my entire life. Um, it, even as I was on going into that deployment, like, I was still studying for my, um, so my AHC test and all that stuff uh, to be able to be a signer for the first time. Cause as you know, I've only been there for a little while. So I was right away delegated as a co-pilot to one of the senior, senior pilots. Cause they knew they can kind of babysit me if I did something stupid and kind of shut me off uh, if I got out of hand. So it was still nose to the books, nose to the grindstone. I mean, yeah, congratulations. You're here. Um, but you're still kind of an idiot. So we're going to be, and, you know, see if you get to play. I was fortunate because the guy that I did, that was my signer first off my combat crew. Um, so we, we start off with a dedicated combat crew and we'll switch it up two or three times throughout the deployment. So my first combat crew was, uh, his call sign was trigger. And, uh, man, he, he had like the secret merc chat window that could always find an engagement. It didn't matter <laughs> what was going on. Somehow if trigger was in the air, there was an engagement coming and he always got it. <laughs> so, <laughs> For me, it was no kidding. My second or third day, and we were we were cleared hot for a hellfire, um, and uh, of course it dropped the codes on me like three times, which I got blamed for. And it turns out, no, the hellfire was defective, so I didn't get to shoot it. Instead, they took out the target with the javelin, and I was pretty irritated about that. Uh -huh, um, yeah. But it was it was balls to the wall. It was everything from my childhood. I got all the gut checks from wrestling and OCS, and and all the the, the defining moments like you talked about. Okay, are you gonna are you gonna hammer down or are you gonna bitch out that was very much that first week i was scared i'm not ashamed to admit it um you get on that bus and you're like okay i just left that behind everything i know off u.s soil my brand new wife is at home um holy crap um i wanted this and now here's the fire hose i was a little i was a little scared i'll completely admit it um i had just got my uh <laughs> just got my call sign and was realizing like what a a big deal this was and uh how fast if you screw it up and put fires down in the wrong place how fast you make the national news and make things a lot harder for your buddies yeah. um not to mention the actual day that we ripped with uh the previous squadron uh everybody knew of course because everything's a leaky sieve over there and every unit i think it was in southern Helmand got hit at the same time on the day that we ripped so i walked out of my hooch looked up and saw about um, I don't know, 30 or 40 high Mars going off at the same time, just streaks, just flying. These things were going at the cyclic rate, 
because Cass was completely tapped out. Like every section was out and just coming back and refueling, going back out, refueling, going back out. So all the arty was going off, all the high marks were going off. It was insane. The tick horns going off nonstop. You want to talk about like a, oh shit. <laughs> yeah. rolling, rolling in on your first day. And it, it, we had been there for a week and a half to go get, get into the game, but that was the first day that we were in the driver's seat. Um, so that was intense and a shock. And that's, that's that mo- another moment where it was like, okay, what are you going to do? And I remember just looking at my buddy and going, hell yeah, let's freaking do this. And it, I think that was the right response. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting because I, I think a lot of people would say, you know, I don't want to use the term counterinsurgency operations, but I'm going to, okay, are you're fighting a lesser enemy or something like that. And from my experience, they know, you know, they, they are, they are working damn hard on their intelligence and, and their picture of their enemy and looking for their weak points and, and they're playing to their skill. And they know, they know when a Marine Corps air wing is ripping, they can, they see it happening. They have eyes and ears and, you know, we try our very damnedest to like not let that stuff come out, but the enemy gets a vote in all of these things. And from my sure. experience in those countries over in the Middle East, they're damn good at playing to their strength where they're not going to do like a, you know, they're not going to come out and wear a uniform and like attack us and this, that, and the other. And do, they're going to blend into the background and they're going to be the people cleaning and this, that, and the other around you. And then they're going to go and speak to their buddies and, you know, they know they're like, mm. oh, by the way, you know, they're ripping out their first days this. And, and that's when they're going to hit you because that's when they think they can put you on the back foot and they can have the most effect. And for what, whether anyone likes it or not, that's smart. And that's a dangerous enemy. And people yeah. need to be good to go when, when, when that time comes around. Mate, so obviously first tour, you're, like you said, you're, you, you've been given a good mentor and, you know, you, you're able to get after it and stuff like that. You you head home. How long are you at home before before you cycle back? Uh, at the time, I was I actually ended up being home for a couple of years. Um, I got back, got my got my AHC call. Actually, no, I didn't. I barely did not get it. Um, no, no, I did get it. It was really close, but I got it. And uh, then everybody, you know, after you after deployment, I don't know how it is for you guys, but for us, we come home. And typically, if you're not in a fast rotation cycle, it's everybody gets billeted out. Mm-hmm. I end up getting billeted. The, the headquarters mag building and working for the uh the colonel as his like uh as his his, his party planner his special events planner which i guess at the time was like where you put the guy that you don't want to deal with anymore and i totally understand how that happened because i i, I mean i was a thorn in the side of the more senior pilots because i just didn't didn't roll over ever and looking back i'm, I'm glad I, i'm glad i did it that way but i just would i should have been more tactful about it so i ended up basically getting sidelined for a little while and I got pulled back in in uh, 20 when was it beginning of 2013 I think it was um, because a couple of my buddies had gone to a different squadron and um, had been very successful and they had all grown up there under some very good mentorship but they remembered me because I had helped them out at the rag uh, a particular individual I, I had helped teach weapons to and he said hey gardens not not bad. He's good to go. We need a couple more pilots. He's actually been there and done the thing. Let's pull him back in. So at that time, I was a little more mature. I was a little older. I sort of understood the game better. So I went in and it was with my peers, but I still went in with the appropriate attitude. Like, hey, you know, shut up. Prove yourself to be a player and, and, and do a good job. And then maybe you'll get a spot at the table. You know, maybe you'll be on the starting team when they go back because they are going back. And so we ended up going back in uh, November of 2013 for – my round two 
So obviously you're out of that particular theater for a number of years. What was the biggest sort of change that you saw coming back around to that? It was night and day, man. And, and it depends. I, I kind of think I see in your face that you know it was too. There was a lot of change. Um, even from 2010 to 2011 when I went, guys who had been there previously said, this is completely different. I didn't understand what that meant. But going back in 2013, yeah, the ROE was very different. Um, we had to fight to get Hellfires to be considered um, direct fire weapons. Otherwise, we weren't able to use them. We, had to, we basically were told, you're not going to shoot rockets ever because you can't guarantee those effects. And the, the ROE had become extremely stringent, almost non-permissible in uh, where you could put your weapons and their effects. Um, everything related to agriculture and infrastructure was off limits. Um, I remember uh, the administration at the time, Obama's administration basically shook hands with uh, the Afghani president. And uh, we ended up through that rogering up to Afghanistan's request for our ROE, which was all being controlled by the shadow governors at the time. So basically they got everything they want. We broke, you know, I won't get into ROE specifics, but it was extremely difficult. Anything that you could possibly think of to make us not legally shoot, they had put on the table. So it was extremely difficult before if we, you know, saw the thing and we saw hostile intent, you know, all that stuff. And, and we had like the checklist met, it was go time. We could, we could, uh, we could strike. This time it, it felt like we were on a damn case of like law and order CSI or something like that, just trying to figure out, okay, did we get everything perfect? Because if not, rule number one, don't get shot. Rule number two is don't go to jail. You know, yeah, that was yeah. kind of how. Yeah. So it was very different. What uh, What's your favorite platform, other than obviously your own sort of Cobra platform? You know, to be in the stack with you. Uh, it's got to be a toss between the AC one hundred and thirty and an A ten. Um, yeah. Those are two platforms that I was never irritated when they showed up. I just kind of wish we had popcorn. <laughs> yeah, I've seen plenty I of memes when the gunship shows yeah. up. Or the, yeah, yep. everyone else. Happy, I was back. happy to offer that. You know what? You got it. I'm going to just eat this snack. I'll watch. Let's watch this. What do you think the, uh, what do you think the biggest myth about the, the Cobra sort of fraternity or the aircraft itself is that you'd want to sort of like dispel? I know it looks like from all the feeds that I have of you guys that you were shaking yourselves to death inside that aircrafting. <laughs> uh, sometimes, yes. <laughs> uh, we don't, when the gun shakes, we don't really shake. You just feel a nice pleasant thump thump under your nads because the gun is right under the front seat of your seat. Um, I, I'd say the biggest myth that I'd like to dispel is, and it's going to piss off the Huey pilots, is that the Huey can do anything a Cobra can. <laughs> <laughs> So there's there's a lot of this because the Hueys and Cobras operate out of the same squadron, and uh, the Hueys now have a better sensor, um, at least at the time, because they were operating the next generation Hueys, and we had the older Whiskey Cobras. They had the Yankees, Yankee Hueys, so their sensor was better. It was like H high def for standard def. Their laser um, was coupled to that. They had the same rockets. They had the door gunners, but they didn't have the Hellfire, and they didn't have our 20 mil. But they would always give us crap and say, you know what? We don't even need Cobras. You know what? Pure Huey section. We can do anything you can do until <laughs> it was time to no, actually drill some armor. So the biggest myth I think I'd like to dispel is that a Huey can do anything a Cobra can do. Not even yeah. close. I thought it was <laughs> smart. The mix that you guys flew, though, when you're away, I, you know, there was something about having a Cobra Huey uh, mix, you know, uh, on station, you know, uh, the Cobra low and dirty, like, cutting around and, and getting involved in what you're doing. And then, you know, that Huey sitting up a little bit higher and giving you a little bit more fidelity 
it's a clever mix and i think when it's used right it, it's a good you know it's good to be a bit of intersection rivalry but when you boys come come to work it's uh it is a good i think you uh sort of complement each other really really well um a bit yeah. of a sort of a light-hearted question like you said you've listened to a few of the podcasts are you a are you a coffee snob are you a connoisseur of the uh of the of the grind uh i enjoy coffee but i'm not um actually what, I, what i've been sipping on this whole time if you may have ever heard of strike force is and i'm not sponsored by them or anything it's <laughs> strike. A, i am a crackhead for that stuff it's it's a it's a, a syrup you pour into anything and it's just woo. here we go okay so my wife my wife however is a bit um she swears by her black rifle and she's got her particular blend that she really loves and and if she doesn't get that you know well it's gremlin time here we go <laughs> yeah those boys over there they get a lot of love so that's a that's a good thing because obviously they take care of the community and that's great but strike force will put that down in the in the bio as well um saying you sort of uh, come from a sheltered background you obviously you went and worked with a bunch of meat eaters you know the squadron bar has its uh, has its way of um you know corrupting a man are you uh, a whiskey <laughs> a whiskey connoisseur or, or have you uh, managed to keep away Oh, no, nah, no, not at all. I'm very much, I, I, I'm assuming when you say connoisseur that I know a lot about it. Oh, you just um, maybe just drink a lot of it. <laughs> I just drink a lot of it. That's really more of what it is. So, <laughs> no, nah, I, I, I do enjoy a good, a good fine whiskey. But at some point, you have to look at your pocketbook and understand cost for, and consumption. And at that point, you start leaning towards, okay, uh, what is the cheapest that doesn't taste like crap? <laughs> <laughs> And that's that's sometimes where we end up. So, yeah, and and I get obviously that I'm I'm kind of going the old, other way in my uh, old age. I'll drink less and at a sort of finer level, if that makes sense. Yeah, I I need to go there. I just I guess I haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> yeah, um, if uh, I could send you back and I could get you to speak to that young man, you know, he's all fired up and he's like, I'm not going to take anything from anybody, kind of attitude. Um, what sort of three skills would you say to him? You know, these three skills, they're going to get you through and they're going to help you be successful. I would say, um, like, like you said, uh, what was it you said earlier? Uh, relationships. I would say, uh, think about this quadrant in terms of relationships and those dynamics in the hierarchy and then identify the people that you need to have good relationships with right off the bat. And I would say, uh, first off, be technically proficient so that you can be tactically proficient so know your aircraft because if you're good if you're good at it there's not much you can say and then three is be a good rocket shot <laughs> because if you're a good rocket shot it's sort of that like um sort of like jedi skill like there, there's good rocket shots and there aren't there's no guidance on it and you can either fly the shit out of that aircraft and, and put rockets down accurately or you can't um, yeah relying on the, enough, the rudder pedals the yeah. toes of a pilot that always used to be like my one thing. I'd be like, I hope this guy knows what he's what he's about. Yep, and, and that ended up being one of my one of my calling cards in the second squadron. Anyways, when I got there, I put a lot of work into it, and I was I was able to confidently do it. And it actually created some friction because there was a couple engagements in that less permissive second deployment where I I, I used them. Uh, I remember one one particular engagement. We had a British uh, uh, an SAS team. Um, I'm not sure the the correct name for the unit but that's what we that's what i believe they were um i think it was in musa kayla 
up to the north in the Southern Hellman area. And uh, it, it, long story short, we did multiple gun runs, and all we were allowed to do at the time was put down fires in like adjacent fields, you know, and try to shut shut off the fires of the guys who were attacking them. And they had a couple casualties, and uh, it quickly became obvious after two or three gun runs, we need a bigger boom, and we're not going to get authorized for a Hellfire. And your 7.62 minigun and even my 20 mil isn't doing it. So I remember asking, like, hey, we need to give them rockets. And I recall the JTAC at the time was screaming for rockets. I, I, I just remember having this, just this pit in my, my stomach going, this guy's screaming for help. And we're not going to do this because we're worried that they're unguided and, and one might, you know, take a, take a turn. This is bullshit. And um, so I never got a, I actually never got a Roger up from the, the flight lead. And I was like, well, I guess silence is consent. We got cleared hot and I, we ended up tipping in. I put uh, four rockets down in succession and that and believe it or not it actually shut them off immediately and the guys were able to exfil um and then we we came back and it's on the footage like hey those shots were accurate man i'm glad you're accurate but whew, what a risk i'm like no I, we practiced the hell out of this if you're a good rocket shot then you can do it so be a good rocket shot so um yeah sidebar there i don't know why i went down that <laughs> no, that's good that's whatever everyone loves a good sidebar what uh if you have one sort of funny story, something just unexplainable that you've seen in your time that sticks out, what would it be? Oh, uh, unexplainable that I've seen. Um, <laughs> we, I think I have it on a, a piece of footage as well that I'm probably not supposed to have. Um, we, we, we ended up seeing a fight club uh, <laughs> okay. on, on Flair. It's a big gathering of people and you're like, okay, it's Friday night. I guess it's what they do on Friday night. I'm not sure what's at the center of that, but then you zoom in and you can see two dudes just, just grappling and just beating the crap out of each other. I'm like, Hey, they have UFC. Look at that. <laughs> it, was, it was kind of funny. If I had to say, okay, so this is not something I saw, but this is something I made someone else see. Um, if you've got time for a quick one, this is kind of funny. So you know how it is when you get bored, especially over there, there's limited entertainment and you do weird stuff. So no kidding may or may not have convinced my front seater as I'm flying in the back as dash two in the section, not to fly with my hands on the screen here. Um, we, we had nothing going on. So I told, I convinced my front seater to take off his vest, his helmet and his armor as we're on an active uh, JTAR trying to, you know, do some basic, whatever recon, took it all off, unzipped his flight suit all the way down around his knees. And he somehow, this is a very tall guy, he's like six foot four, he finagled himself in the front seat of the Cobra and put his ass up against the side of the cockpit. <laughs> and then I killed the other Huey and said, hey, uh, we have a crack in our windshield. Um, you mind if the crew chiefs check it out? We're going to pull up alongside. And I had purposely kind of gone like trail <laughs> so they back and see this coming. And they said, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah, sounds serious, you know? So I, I hammer on come on up there and like really step on the brakes so there's no way they could see this coming and we just pull up and I see the crew chief just bind us to the face and then he just immediately <laughs> throws <it down> <laughs> and then I look and sure enough the Huey sensor all, all high def and zoom in whoop slews right to the cockpit <laughs> they all got a full full face full of my buddy uh, my buddy's ass but what, what what really was the icing on the cake for that particular moment was that when I stepped on the, the brakes that hard uh, the rotor speed slowed down quite a bit. So we got the low rotor horn and the, and the bitch and Betty rotor RPM. And I just remember my front seat, my front seat here just helpless, just finagled up like, oh God. Because <laughs> he doesn't, we just had a real malfunction. Like, no, no, it's okay. I got it. I got it. 
you know, we're laughing later, like what happened, what would have happened if we went down like that? And they're trying to figure this out, you know, like, you know, the back seater was obviously doing whatever he could to save the aircraft. The front seater, however, <laughs> was freaking out and getting naked. <laughs> was pretty much naked. We're not, understand. we're not sure what happened there, guys. So. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. <laughs> that was, um, if I was uh, going to make you a, a desert island Cobra pilot, and uh, obviously, I'll give you I'll give you your aircraft and a bit of fuel to mess around, but you can only stay within the uh, sort of AO of the desert island to support the guys that are on the ground there. But uh, what three items are coming to the cockpit with you? What three items are coming to the cockpit with me? Um, oh, well, I'm going to say my probably not to be too much of a nerd, but I'm going to bring my PCH so that I don't you know screw it up, don't miss my and uh, can make sure I know my emergency procedures correctly. Uh, a map of the island if I have it and a Sharpie so that I can write things down and write down nine lines, mark targets, uh, pull grids, what, what have you. I think if I had that, I could probably operate. Yeah, some, some, uh, some good stuff there. If you had one top tip to hand down to JTACs or JFOs or anyone in the FARS community having to deal with, a, uh, with an AH, what would that be? The one thing that you've seen over the days where you'd think if we could just fix this up. Oh, so well, well, so for you guys, as the customer, uh, it's imperative for you that we put our fires down in, ex in an expeditious manner, right? The, the less time we can take in the kill chain, the better. Let's get the, let's get rounds off the aircraft. So, well, I have two answers. One's one's funny and goofy, and one's one's real life. The, the funny goofy one is uh, it, skip the mortar target lines and all the impact points when I check into your airspace. That will save us about five minutes. <laughs> I don't. I don't I don't know exactly where you were, but I recall checking through, checking in through multiple call signs, and it seemed like every single call sign that I checked checked into in this particular space that was managed by you guys, um, somebody would come up on the radio and give us every single mortar, mortar impact point, and it no kidding, I would I would be just getting to the end of copying down all the mortar <laughs> impact points, and I'm like, hey, I'm checking out, man, I'm already out of your airspace, bye. Oh, man. <laughs> we're already out of here <laughs> i was like i never even got okay we're moving on um but no I, it, it's kind of hard to nail down an actual answer because you guys are pros you guys did great um i never really had a hard time uh with anything and nothing really slowed us down if anything it was it was with our own guys um and probably dealing with our already guys who, who maybe were a little more behind the curve but now you guys are brilliant over there um i think that the one thing that always made me smile was whenever, like you, you said when we were first talking before we hit record, is uh, the difference in diction. So, you know, uh, winter devil versus cherry ice. Mm. And um, I always got an immature giggle out of any time that we would have a dialogue. And then one of your guys would finish up asking me, all right, does that make you happy? <laughs> and I always, I always like introspectively asking myself, am I, am I happy? I guess not really in general right now, but yeah, sure. That makes me happy. You know, it's just one of those fun <laughs> One of those funny things yeah definitely I, I think that's something i'm guilty of i definitely go ha are we all, are we happy do you know what i mean and uh, kind of throwing it out there to i guess it's saying any alibis kind of thing like anyone got any yeah. comebacks but yeah uh, yeah definitely guilty of, of that as one of one of my uh, sayings i appreciate you taking the time man if you had one closing thought you know across the whole community from like door kickers and shooters all the way up to you know your, your fixed wing guys um right through what would the sort of serving or veteran your message across that be to everyone? So th this is something that sort of helps me stay caged now. Um, 
because like I said, when I first got out, it was not a super easy transition because I had, I had a very wrong idea of what life would be like when I got out. If I could just kind of bring it, boil it down to a couple things, I would say, one, know the difference between your job and, and duty to what you, you know, uh, swore an oath to protect. And that will help drive your decision making, especially in times like this, where there's all sorts of crazy stuff going on. And understand that society owes you nothing. When you get out, you're not special. You may have special skills, but no one knows that. No one cares. So know that no one owes you a thing. You're going to have to work hard and you're going to have to reprove yourself. Kind of think of it like going back to your first unit. That's how you treat your first job. That's how you should treat life and uh, your, your employers. And if you do that, then you will recreate the success you've had or most likely had in the military. Roger that. Derek, appreciate you taking the time, man. Thank you. Absolutely. Great to meet you. Good to talk to you. Thank you, and I appreciate you taking the time to listen. All our podcasts sit on the Nine Foot Night Killer Collective, Soul Feed, Forge Not Made, and the JTAP podcast. Take some time, maybe listen to one of the other podcast series that you're not listening to, and give us your feedback. All these things only happen because of the Nine Foot Night Killer community, and we really appreciate them. Thank you, everybody, for listening.